So last time we were together, we looked at a message called the 144,000 and the great multitude. And my intention was to get through Revelation 7. And of course, we didn't make it. I know you were all shocked. You thought, for sure, he'll probably just, he'll probably, you know, get through in chapter 10. Yeah, right. Anyway, so we looked at the 144,000. One thing we determined with, uh, I think, great uh, definitiveness is that the 144,000 are not Jehovah's Witnesses. So just so you all know that. We determined that the 144,000 that's up on the screen behind me are Jewish people. It's not hard to figure it out because it says there are 12,000 from this tribe and that tribe. But the key that, to our understanding of what's happening here is that they're sealed. And they're sealed between the sixth and seventh seals. Now there's a, a difference between the seals I'm talking about. So we have been looking at what is called the seven seals of the book of Revelation. And so far we've moved through six of them. And there's an interlude or a space or a chapter between the breaking of the sixth seal and the breaking of the seventh seal. That interlude or in between between the breaking of the sixth and seventh seals is Revelation chapter seven. And there are two things that happen in Revelation 7 that we just need to understand. They're not hard for us to track. One is there's 144,000 people that are sealed. We determine that the seal is primarily for ownership and protection. And then there's a great multitude that appears in heaven. And they are distinct from the 144,000. So some commentators would say that the 144,000 are Jews, and that's clear, and the great multitude are all Gentiles. Somebody asked me at the end of last week's study, could the great multitude, since it does say they're from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people, include Jewish people? And I would say that's possible. The church is certainly made up of Jews and Gentiles. And so this is where we are in the text right now. Now, just to backtrack, if you're new to this study and you've just come recently, as we've moved through the seven seals, or at least six of the seven seals, here's what we discovered. There's a symmetry between Jesus's Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24. You also find it in Mark 13 and Luke 21. And a symmetry with Revelation 6. And when we looked at the four horsemen of the apocalypse, which are the first four seals uh, recorded in Revelation 6, we saw Antichrist, war, famine, and pestilence. And then we saw death. And death, that writer, needs no emblem. And we, we concluded that really the first, uh, these first four writers, death is kind of the combination of all of them. When we got to the fifth seal, if you take a look for a second, the fifth seal is found in Revelation 6, 9. When Jesus broke that seal, we saw martyrs underneath the altar. Now, when we looked at Jesus's Olivet Discourse teaching in Matthew 24, we're not going to go back there tonight. Here's what Jesus said. He talked about false Christs and false prophets. He talked about war, famine, and pestilence. And then he said, you will see a sign. And I believe that this is the marker that catapults or begins or signals the great tribulation. You will see the, what uh, Daniel the prophet spoke of and he called it the abomination of, remember, desolation. That's in Matthew 24, 15. 
And after Jesus takes us through false Christ, war, famine, pestilence, and so forth, and martyrdom, he talks about this abomination of desolation standing in the holy place. And then Matthew says, let the reader understand. And when this abomination of desolation standing in the holy place is mentioned, Jesus then says, let those who are in Judea do what? Flee to the mountains. Let people, don't even go back to get your coat because there's going to be a time of great tribulation. Jesus goes on to say, unless those days of tribulation were cut short, literally the Greek word could be amputated, no flesh would survive. Now, if you look at the symmetry between Revelation 6 and Matthew 24, and you move down the seals, and you see what Jesus said, basically what you have is you have this Antichrist appearing, calling himself God, and sparking what we would call the Great Tribulation. And, and Jesus says, when you see that, get out of town. And in the first century, I think it's Eusebius said, there were a group of believers when Jerusalem was being uh, threatened and then finally sacked by the Romans. There were a group of people who were aware of Jesus' teaching and they got out of Jerusalem at that time. They fled to the mountains and they survived. And anybody who was left in Jerusalem at that time, if you've ever read accounts from Josephus about the fall of Jerusalem, uh, the content is absolutely hard to take. In fact, Josephus says there were people on crosses all over the landscape. Everywhere you could see, somebody was on a cross dying. The Romans, as a tactic of war, starved the people out so that Josephus says that parents began to eat their children. It was absolute brutality. The numbers vary, but something like a million Jewish people died during that raid. Now, there are some New Testament scholars who believe that the fall of Jerusalem is the, what the book of Revelation is talking about. There's no future fulfillment that's what it's talking about. I do not hold that view. But I do believe that the Bible, many times with prophetic utterances, gives us multiple layers of fulfillment. I'll give you an example. In the book of Joel, the day of the Lord is the, the major theme of the book of Joel. And there's a locust invasion that Joel re records that happened back in antiquity, back in the day. However, that locust invasion and the damage done by those locusts was a foreshadowing of the ultimate day of the Lord. I believe the fall of Jerusalem is another foreshadowing of the ultimate day of the Lord. And I think that one marker of all the things that we could, you know, contemplate as we consider prophecy and eschatology, the study of the end times, is that Jerusalem is now in control of the Jewish people. In fact, there's a debate right now in our own government as to whether or not Jerusalem should be the capital and, uh, and so forth. So, uh, and where our, um, I keep, I always forget the name of that place, where our embassy should be, thank you. So that's going on in the world right now. That happened in 1967, by the way. So those of you who, you know, were, born around that time or before or a little bit after, you can see how 
recent that is. That's what, 50 years ago. So that's in our immediate past. So we look at that, we watch that, and we, we take note of what's going on. Now, between the, if you notice at the end of chapter six, just to catch us up, remember that the sixth seal is broken, the sign of the day of the Lord, and again, I don't think stars are literally gonna fall to the ground. That was another question that we discussed up here in the front. I think that these are, um, this is, I take this as the natural lights are going to go out, but some of this is symbolic language. But notice the sixth seal is broken, Revelation 6, 12. And you have the sun, moon, and stars. You have some sort of cosmic sign. I've written in my Bible, this is the sign of the day of the Lord. Now, just to remind you, Joel 2, I think it's 2.11 and into chapter 3, said that the sun and the moon and the stars, there will be this cosmic disturbance the natural lights will go out, if you will, before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. So this will be the sign that God is about to judge. And simply put, the natural lights go out and God is about to judge. Now, what I've tried to put before you for your strong consideration is there is a difference between tribulation and wrath. The word tribulation for those of you who are really good students, you've already written it down several times, is flipsis, T-H-L-I-P-S-I-S. It's the Greek word translated tribulation, trouble, or persecution. So when you hear tribulation, don't immediately assume or think that the tribulation is God's wrath. I've tried to show you that I don't believe God's wrath has come yet, and I have made that case because I believe that the fifth seal being martyrs, people who will not recant in the face of great pressure, they hold to their faith, cannot be the wrath of God. I believe the sign that you've just saw in Revelation 6, 12 is indicating that his wrath is about to come. If you flip over, just to give you the helicopter view, really quick to Revelation 8, 1, that's when you see the seventh seal broken. That'll be for our next study. You'll see an anticipatory silence. Look at Revelation 8.1. In heaven for about the space of a half an hour. We'll go to Zephaniah and take a look at that and ponder what that means. And then the seventh seal, uh, when it is broken, I believe that's when your wrath begins. So the wrath of God has not come yet. So two things happen in Revelation 7, just so we're all clear. The sealing of the 144,000 for ownership and protection and then this great multitude that appears in the sky. The church is not appointed to wrath. Amen? We'll see that as we look at a parallel scripture tonight. So I don't believe the wrath has started. I believe Revelation 7 is the sealing of the 144,000 and the rapture of the church. That's my view. I've let you, you know, kind of ponder that and consider that and weigh the scriptural evidence for that. Of course, many of you are realizing that if, it, if that is the case, that the church will go through much of Daniel's 70th week. We won't go through wrath, but we will experience tribulation. And that is something that the church has experienced for 2,000 years. So it shouldn't shock us, right? Now, I have mentioned to you, if I had a vote, if my vote counted for anything, and it doesn't, <laughs> yeah. 
I would vote for a pre-tribulation rapture because I have no martyr's complex. In fact, I don't even like when I cut my finger with a paper cut. <laughs> However, the church has always faced tribulation. America has been a unique place and we are blessed to live here. But the church in America is experiencing an ever-tightening grip from the moral code of the world that is slipping into the abyss. And I'm sure if you've been paying any attention at all, you can see uh, the way the world is going. So we've looked at the 144,000. Now we look at this great multitude. Two markers. Uh, after this, Revelation 7, 1, after this is that sixth seal. Then that's, there's the sealing. That's Revelation 7, 1. And another time marker, I would argue, is after these things, which is Revelation 7, 9. So it seems to be chronological. That's the way I see it. After these things I looked, Revelation 7, 9, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count. It's a number that you can't even really enumerate. This great multitude is from every nation, all tribes, and peoples, and tongues. Just uh, to backtrack for a second, for those of you who have been wrestling with the idea of preterism, and preterism is that the book of Revelation was fulfilled in the past at the fall of Jerusalem, I find it hard to square that view with what we just read. Here's people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. Every means every. So that means that there's people from everywhere that have been saved that end up in the throne room during or in between the six and seven seals. Everybody with me? How can you have worldwide evangelism happening yet? I mean, we're, we're talking the end of the first century. We're talking about AD 95, right? So I think that, that is a strike against uh, preterism or that all of this happened in the past. Notice these, these people too large to number from every nation, all tribes, peoples, and tongues. They are standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They are clothed in white robes and they have palm branches in their hands. Now, if I asked you just a quick survey, palm branches, when do you remember palm branches in the Bible? What would you say? The triumphal entry, John 12. Uh, they cut down the branches of palms and they are waving them as Jesus makes his triumphal entry. Now, of all that we could comment about the people and what their true attitudes were and what they expected of Jesus and, and did they really understand his mission? We'll put that aside for a second. But when they are waving these at his triumphal entry, the, the, the symbol is one of victory. It's one of hope. It's, yes, our king is here. Our Messiah, if you will. Uh, palm branches are also associated with the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles happens in the fall, by the way. We're coming to that time right now. It's one of the fall feasts of Israel. And it's also associated with tabernacles. And the rabbis would call the Feast of Tabernacles a feast of joy, celebration, thanksgiving. So again, um, these, these uh, would indicate to me that these people are celebrating. They are in the presence of God they have palm branches. Notice that they are standing before the throne uh, and before the Lamb. So the, the before, before the Father and the Son, and we take it the Holy Spirit because we've seen all three together, of course. Remember in this imagery, this is uh, 
the, this is anthropomorphic terminology. Sorry for the big word. All this means is that this is a way to depict the triunity of God. Don't over-literalize it. There are people who say, you see, this shows a separation between the purpose. Well, the, the Father's not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. We've looked at that as we studied the Trinity at 633. Hopefully you guys were there. Or go back and uh, listen to that one. It is depicted here to give you an idea. Don't over-literalize it or you can find yourself in some trouble, okay? The, the group that appears here between the six and seven seals is international in scope. There are some that think they are martyrs. Uh, these, sometimes some people categorize these as tribulation saints. So this is, this is something to ponder as well. So if they are tribulation saints, so here's one view. The church gets raptured at the beginning of Daniel's 70th week. The only people left on the earth are people who are unbelievers, who wouldn't believe, and now they got to face all of these, horse, the, the Antichrist, war, famine, and pestilence. There are some that believe this group is a group of people that got saved somewhere during that time. They refused to take the mark of the beast. They took their stand. Here's my question. Who was witnessing to them? <laughs> well, some people say, it's the Bible track that you left on their desk drawer. It's that gospel track you put in their lunch bag. I don't know. The other argument is, there's 144,000 Billy Grahams that have been witnessing to everybody. <laughs> They're the 144,000. Okay, I understand the argument, but I don't see any scripture that says the 144,000 are evangelizing. Not one. So I'll just say to you, as you wrestle with your view, and maybe you've heard it laid out this way, and again, I've told you good people disagree. I just happen to have the pulpit tonight. <laughs> I do not see one scripture that says the 144,000 are Jewish billygrams, not one. So that's an argument of inference. What do you mean, Pastor Michael? Here's what I mean. It's inferred because there's got to be some way that all these people get saved. Imagine these people would not follow Christ when things were relatively calm. Now all these people are going to get saved when all hell breaks loose, literally, when the Antichrist, possessed by Satan, is doing his dirty work and saying, you can't buy or sell unless you take my mark. And all these people, an uncountable number from every tribe, tongue, and nation and people are going to take their stand in those kinds of dark and troublesome times. These are the kinds of things that I wrestled with when I was wrestling with my view of the end times. And I think we all have to wrestle with it. Remember, I have shared with you, it's only going to really matter to a final generation. The question in Revelation 6.17, which is pertinent to this group and their position before God. Take a look. For the great day of their wrath has come or is about to occur. And the question is, who is able to stand? We looked at Malachi 3, uh, verse 2. We looked at Joel 2.11. Who is able to stand? But there is a group that's able to stand. The great multitude is standing before the throne with palm branches in their hand. Who's able to stand? They're able to stand. And the question is, how? Who will be able to stand in that day? Who can endure his coming? 
Our God is a consuming fire. Who will be able to stand in that day? Jude 24 says it beautifully. It's a benediction. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. By the way, the book of Jude is right before Revelation. It is interesting to me that these people who are standing, it says, he will make you to stand in the presence of his glory with blameless, with great joy. I believe this is a picture of the church from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and people waving palm branches saying, I'm standing, and the reason I'm standing is because I was purchased with the blood of the Lamb. Amen? If you want the answer to the question, who's going to be able to stand in that day? Who's going to be in white robes representing purity? It is those who have the victor's robe who place faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And they, this is Revelation 7.10, this great uncountable multitude from every tribe, tongue, and nation and people, they cry out with a loud voice. And what do they say? They say, salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now they say it loudly. The word salvation, by the way, is in Greek soteria. Some of you who look at theology closely have heard of the study of soteriology. The study of soteriology is the study of salvation. You could read volume upon volume upon volume upon volume of just that. And the debates of Calvinism and Arminianism and Lutheranism and whateverism you want to talk about. Soteriology. The, the word soteria is the word for salvation. But if you look it up in a Greek lexicon, you will find definitions like this. Soteria means rescue, safety, deliverance, salvation. Salvation to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now, if this is the raptured church, let me ask you, how excited would you be to be in a crazy world with some wicked antichrist with all kinds of pressure and all of a sudden the sky gets dark, Jesus appears in the glory with his angels and takes you out of here into the throne room. Places a palm branch in your hand. How much would you be waving that baby? How loud would you be singing? You could put it this way. Deliverance to our God and to the Lamb because the Greek word soteria is also deliverance. That's what it means. This group has been saved. You could say delivered because salvation is deliverance. Take a look at 1 Thessalonians. Go back a little bit in your Bible. 1 Thessalonians. And we're going to look at uh, chapter 4 as we look at this idea of rapture and the day of the Lord. Let's look at it together. We're going to read a long section with very little commentary, but... It's verses we've seen before, but I want you to take a look at a little bigger portion. 1 Thessalonians 4.13 says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. That means those who have died. That you may not grieve, as do the rest who have no hope. 1 Thessalonians 4.14. Just a, a quick sidebar. I was listening to Greg Kokel, and he was talking about the problem of evil. 
And he said he was at a church giving a talk and an atheist young man stood up and he said, I have to give him a lot of credit. He was in a church. He identified himself as an atheist. And, uh, you know, he, he was arguing for his position and, and so forth. And basically it came down to this. Greg said, you know, if there is no God, you know, we talk about the problem of evil, but how is anything evil if there's no standard of morality? In other words, how do you have a problem of evil if there's no objective good to begin with? You can't have a problem of evil if there's no absolute good or truth. So that's, that's number one. But this young man says, I'm an atheist. I don't believe. Greg says, okay, you know, what are your arguments? Back and forth they go. And so the young man basically says, you know, um, I find uh, my atheism to be very freeing. He said, the, my belief in atheism means if there is no God, then I can do whatever I want. There are no moral restraints on me. You know, when you peel back atheism, that's one of the major drivers for it, by the way, is that way you can get, of your, get rid of your moral restraints. I was in a parking lot at a school, tried to witness to a lady that was a teacher. She was getting in her car. I tried to open up a conversation and she said, oh, you're from a church. I, I don't want to hear that. I'm an atheist. She said, you should try it sometime. It's very freeing. Shut the door and off she sped. Have a nice day. God bless you. <laughs> now, how do you respond to an atheist? Well, some of you are tracking with this because you know that, hey, I have, I have an old professor of mine who used to say Christianity cramped his lifestyle. Because when you have moral restraints on you from the God of the Bible, it is something that has to make you think about how you act and how you behave. You have the power of the Holy Spirit. But Greg, Greg made it a very interesting point. He said, you know, this guy's whole argument was, now that I'm an atheist, I have no moral restraint, so I can do whatever I want. And Jesus said, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. An atheist believes Hey, if I can dismiss God, then I have the freedom to sin up a storm. Listen to it. Freedom to sin up a storm. And I can do whatever I want. And Jesus said, whoever commits sin is a slave. How many of you can relate to this? You were an unbeliever sinning up a storm. It was fun for a while because sin is fun for a season. Until all of a sudden, that thing became your master. Can I get a witness? And somebody said, oh, I'm free to do whatever I want, brother. Oh, you are? Actually, the Lord of the universe said, if you live that way, you'll become a slave to the very thing that you think you have control over. And story after story comes out where people die in their sin, commit suicide. It goes on and on. Now, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and we do, 1 Thessalonians 4.14, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Those who have died in Jesus are in good hands. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, 1 Thessalonians 4.15, that we who are alive and remain until what? The coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have died or fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first. So you're going to have a resurrection and a rapture that go together. Then we who are alive and remain or survive shall be caught up together with them, the dead who are resurrected in the clouds when he comes to meet the Lord in the air. 
And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Keep reading. No chapter breaks in the original letter. Now, as to the times and the epics, or the times and the seasons of what he just talked about, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written of you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord, this is what I believe is the wrath of God, the second coming of Jesus, to save his people and judge the world, will come just like a thief in the night. There was a movie called Thief in the Night. While they, there's a contrast between they and us, while they are saying peace and safety, and apparently they'll be saying this right up to the day of the Lord. When they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly, like birth pangs upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But you, by contrast to they, brethren, you are not in darkness that the day, I think that's the day of the Lord from verse 2, should overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do. Let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night. Those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us that whether we are awake or asleep, so whether we're one of the survivors or we have died, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up. Build up one another just as you also are doing. Now back to Revelation chapter 7. So this great group is in heaven. They've got palm branches dressed in white. The angels are there. If you pick it up at Revelation 7, look at verse 11. They, they have uh, worshipped the Lord. And all the angels, 7-11, were standing around the throne. And there's a lot of angels, by the way. And around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God. Just a couple of scriptures for your notes. Deuteronomy 33.2 says... He came from the midst of 10,000 holy ones. At his right hand, there were flashes. There was flashing lightning for them. Daniel 7, 10 mentions thousands upon thousands attending God, myriads of myriads standing around him. So whatever, uh, whenever we get a picture of the throne room of God, we get a picture of myriads of angels. So get this, uncountable numbers of people and incredible numbers of angels. So one day we are going to interact with the angels, which is pretty cool. I just want to meet Michael. That's one on the top on my agenda, right? But imagine that. Imagine the, the, the scene in the throne room. Uh, all these people who worship God, the angels worship God, and they say, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might. I think there's seven things in this benediction. Blessing, glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, power and might. Seven, be to our God forever and ever. Let's say it together. Amen. So verse 12 is bracketed in amens. And there are amens in heaven. So we might as well practice on the earth. Can I get one? Amen. All right, that's pretty cool. Anyway, there you go. And one of the elders, one of the ancients, maybe angels, maybe a human leader of some sort, answered and said to me, these who are clothed in white robes. Now, John has taken all this down, right? He's watching this in the spirit. He's been taken up there to see. 
One of the elders says to John, who's kind of just, you know, uh, an observer, who are they and from where ha have they come? These, this great multitude, who are they? Where'd they come from? NIV says, who are they and where did they come from? Now, imagine being John. I didn't know there was going to be a test here, too. I'm just recording stuff and I'm just an observer here. What, what do you mean? And he said to him, my Lord, which is a title of great respect, you know, uh, this, is, this is reminiscent, I think, what, what, uh, uh, similar to what Ezekiel said. Can these bones live? <laughs> you know. I don't know. Well, he said, you know. That's a smart answer when someone who asks you the question knows the answer and you don't. And he said to me, these are the ones who come out of what? The great tribulation. And they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, we are not told that these are martyrs, but we are told that they come out of the Great Tribulation, and there seems to be a scene of immediacy. In other words, where did all these people come from? Who are they, and where did they come from? They seem to appear all of a sudden to where, to such a degree that it drives the question. Who are these people? They're uncountable. They're from everywhere. Every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. Where'd they come from? And they've come out of the Great Tribulation and they've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now this is, again, symbolic. Blood does not make things white. But Jesus' blood makes us, before God, white as snow. Though our sins be as crimson, they will be what? As white as snow. Right now, you have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. Amen? Right now, God the Father sees you through the perfection of His Son. You have His imputed righteousness. You have been forgiven. Ephesians 1.7 says we have redemption through His blood, Christ's blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Aren't you glad? What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. So the question is, has his blood, another way to say this is, has his atoning work on the cross been applied to you? You say, well, how do I apply it to me? You receive the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, Lord, King of your life. Now this, for this reason, verse 15 they, this great multitude, are before the throne of God. They serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne shall spread his tabernacle over them. For this reason is a connecting phrase. The reason that they are standing clean before him, before his throne, is because they are blessed, forgiven, and not judged because they are washed in the blood of the Lamb. That's why they can stand before the Lord. Moses in Exodus 30, 32 through 34, somewhere in there, says, Lord, I want to see your glory. And God says, no one can what? See my face and live. But these people are right before his throne. How do they get there? How do they stand? The reason is because they're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Because they're forgiven. They stand in the very presence of God Almighty. And later in the book of Revelation, we will see that we will see God's face, which is an amazing thing. In fact, would you not say 
It's pretty much what we've longed for our whole lives. Do you want to see God? Do you want to see his face? You say, well, how, what will that be like? I don't know. I don't know for sure. But I'll tell you what, it's going to be glorious. We're going to see Jesus face to face. We're going to see God. And I don't know everything that that means. But I'll tell you what, it's an amazing reality. And if you're a Christian, it's your future. You see, you need to put yourself here because that's where you're going to be. You're going to see his face. There's going to be joy, worship, blessing. God spreading his tabernacle over them is a Greek word which evokes memories of the tabernacle in the wilderness. We might translate it this way. He will make his Shekinah to dwell with them. We will be in the presence and the glory of God. Morris says, as it is often was among the Jews of the time, it means the immediate presence of God. God will cover us under the shadow of his wings. We will be there in his presence. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Now look at what happens next. This is the last few verses. They, this great group, shall hunger no more. Now, why does it say hunger? If you're an American, this may not apply to you. But what if you've gone through a time of great tribulation where it was difficult to get food? Maybe you couldn't even buy or sell. They will neither thirst anymore. Why would, they, why would that be a big deal? Why would you mention that they were thirsty? Maybe they were in hiding. Maybe they had gone through a tough time where resources were minimal. Neither shall the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. Again, you can take it for what you think it means. I think they've been through a tough time. For the lamb in the center of the throne shall be their shepherd and shall guide them to the springs of the water of life. And God shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. God is going to wipe away every tear of sorrow. And, you know, the immediate application here is imagine if this group is a raptured group that's been through great tribulation, imagine the tears. Imagine the prayers. Imagine the endurance that it will take. Imagine maybe watching people pay the ultimate price. I think there's certainly application there. Later on in Revelation 21, verse 4, it says, he will, will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And the, the springs of the water of life are mentioned again. The water of life is mentioned in Revelation 21, 6, 22, 1, and 22, 17. I want to take you to Isaiah 25 and we're done. So Shane, if you can hear my voice, uh, we're going to be wrapping up. Isaiah 25. There's a parallel scripture here, which is um, a banquet scene. And it picks up some of these themes. Isaiah 25, verse 6. And here's what it says. Oh, let's go back a little bit. Ah, never mind. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's Isaiah 25. 25. Verse 3. Therefore, a strong people will glorify thee. 25.3. Cities of ruthless nations will revere thee. For thou hast been a defense for the helpless. A defense for the needy in his distress. 25.4 of Isaiah. A refuge from the storm. A shade from the heat. 
For the breath of the ruthless is like rain, a rainstorm against a wall. Like heat in, in drought, thou dost subdue the uproar of aliens. Like heat by the shadow of a cloud, the song of the ruthless is silenced. And the Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain. A banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow, and refined aged wine. And on this mountain, he will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all nations. He will swallow up death for all time. And the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces. And he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. And it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God. It rings with Revelation 7, doesn't it? Salvation. Behold, this is our God whom we, for whom we have waited that he might, what? Save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Father, we are so grateful for the hope that we have as believers. No matter what comes at this world, whatever we may face in a broken and fallen world, Lord, and even in times of persecution, which is certainly at the core of what we're reading here, Lord, you are going to enter this, this planet in glory. You're going to save your people and judge the world in righteousness. And you, you tell us you're going to cover us in your beauty, in your tabernacle, you're going to wipe away tears from every face. And there will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. And we're going to say, behold, <laughs> this is our God who has saved us. Salvation to our God and to the Lamb. Father, I just pray that whatever each of us may be facing, whether it's some internal struggles, whether it's a, a loss, whether it's depression, whether it's just wondering if I can make it as a Christian. Lord, I pray that you would encourage faith in this room tonight, that you will write the last chapter. You've already done it. And just like you fulfilled all the prophecies of your first coming, you will fulfill every prophecy of your second coming. He who promised is faithful. And so, Lord, help us to hang on because you will never let us go. I pray that you would speak refreshment, life, encouragement to your people. And with your head and heart bowed, if you need to get back to God, if you've walked away maybe from your first love or maybe you've never met him, but you want to know him, just cry out to him. Lord Jesus, pray it if it's you. Be my Savior. Be my Lord. Forgive me for trying to do it on my own. Thank you for the blood of the Lamb. Thank you for sending your son and loving me that much. I trust in his finished work on the cross, his resurrection from the dead. I turn from my sin and I turn to you through your son. Father, I pray that those who may hear this message later would even have an opportunity right at this moment to confess Jesus as Lord and Savior, to be saved, to be born again to a living hope that will never fade away, that's reserved in heaven for us, who are kept by the power 
of God. We love you and we pray all of this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.